Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. We are following a pattern of embryological development as a species, not unlike what we follow individually as we're developing in the womb. Certain connections and relationships come into focus that trigger a development. And I believe that we are at that point when that triggering has taken place. We've developed a civilization that has annihilated, for all practical purposes, the boundaries of time and space upon the globe. We have instant communication around the planet. Cultures are brought together in ways that they have not had to confront each other in the past. And this evolving complexity of our civilization has produced both challenges and opportunities that can only be properly understood and grasped with a global perspective. Tonight we present the fourth and concluding program in our series, History and the New Age. I think that man is a, is a concerned animal, and he has certain primary concerns which are extremely simple. Life is better than death, and happiness is better than misery, and freedom is better than slavery. He also has secondary concerns which are ideological and have to do with the ascendancy of classes or nations, priesthoods or bureaucracies or what have you. And uh, consequently, all through history, the secondary concerns have had the uh, edge over the primary ones, because although we prefer to live, we still go to war. And I think that the 20th century, what with the atom bomb and, and a pollution that threatens to cut off the air we breathe, is the first period in history which confronts man with a conclusion primary concern must become primary or else. The human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now when wrong comes up to face us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul men ever took. Affairs are now soul size. The enterprise is exploration into God. These prophetic words are Christopher Fry's from a verse play called A Sleep of Prisoners. And they express the ultimate choices with which humanity now lives. With the splitting of the atom and the deciphering of the genetic code, the divine power of life and death has been given over into our hands. Our response must be either to destroy ourselves or to begin the building of a planetary culture which embodies both the unity and the diversity of the earth and all its peoples. Towards a planetary culture, the final program in our series, History in the New Age, written and presented by David Cayley. Many contemporary observers have discerned in the image of the atomic bomb the end of an historical era. I would like to go farther 
and suggest that the splitting of the atom represents the end of history itself. With the invention of the bomb, history becomes a one-way street to the apocalypse. Consequently, a question arises about our understanding of ourselves as primarily historical beings. The bomb throws us back into the present. It awakens us from our historical trance and reacquaints us with the ultimate value of the natural world in which our life has its source. Father Raimundo Panicar is a Jesuit scholar of mixed Spanish and Hindu background and a professor of comparative religions at the University of California. He has recently published an essay called The End of History. The atom bomb kills the living matter and from an animistic point of view this I think is very important and this is something which is uh, the highest crime that humanity could commit just to kill Mother Earth. But besides that, the split of the atom has produced some, uh, an idea which until then was not only unthinkable, unthought in any human civilization as much as I know. And this is the possibility of a collective suicide. Before, we knew very well the culpers, the apocalypses, the end of the world because of the angels, because of the wrath of God, because the entropy uh, comes to zero or whatever it is, which is a kind of natural process that this whole show is not everlasting. This is totally different from the idea that in the human being is such a possibility of committing suicide. This kind of thing, in my opinion, triggers the reflection of what I call the end of history. That is, that linear time, historical time, time directed mainly, if not almost exclusively, towards the future, comes to an end. And my whole effort is precisely at discovering this threefold structure of temporal consciousness in which the historical consciousness is only one-third or one aspect. Once we discover that we are not just historical beings, that time is not only an arrow running towards the future, I think we have the possibility of recovering that kind of lost hope or whatever, that our humanness is not exhausted by the historical failure and perhaps then uh, help to reactivate what I constantly call the metanoia, the transformation and the, uh, the modification of our present day system of living together. Unless we modify radically the project of human living, we are going to destroy ourselves physically and totally. What Father Panikar calls the end of history is the precondition for the emergence of a planetary culture, although perhaps it needs to be re-emphasized that the term history is used here in a limited sense. It refers specifically to that form of consciousness which is oriented primarily to the future, that consciousness which points away from nature towards a transcendent goal. In this sense, planetary culture begins 
where history ends. One model of the emergence of this new planetary culture has been provided by Dr. Ewart Cousins, a professor of theology at Fordham University. He believes that in order to understand the transformation now taking place, we need to go back to the period when historical consciousness first emerged. Carl Jaspers, in his book The Origin and Goal of History, published in Zurich in 1949, describes what he calls the axial period of history. By that he means a period between roughly the years 800 and 200 B.C., peaking about 500 B.C., in which there was a transformation of consciousness in three different geographical areas of the earth without apparent influence of one upon the other. In China, there was the emergence of Lao Tzu and Confucius and the schools of Chinese philosophy. In India, the Buddha, the Upanishads, Mahavira. In Iran, the emergence of Zoroaster and the Zoroastrian religion. In the Mediterranean, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean area, there was in Greece, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Greek philosophy. And in Israel, the rise of the great Hebrew prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. What is striking is that although these events took place in three different geographical areas, the type of consciousness that was formed was similar. It is a subjective, self-reflective, critical, philosophical consciousness. And it is the form of consciousness that is ours today. The subsequent history of culture has been enacted within the horizons of this form of consciousness. Now, I'd like to add to Carl Jasper's theory of the axial period by claiming that we are in the midst of a second axial period. And in this period, there is a transformation of consciousness that is similar in significance, but different in content from that that occurred in the first axial period. Like the first axial period, this second axial period has been taking shape for some time, over several centuries. And I feel that the characteristic quality of this new consciousness is global consciousness. And it's global in two senses. In a sense, I call it a horizontal perspective, in the sense that the great religions of the world are meeting each other on the surface of the earth in an unprecedented way. But deeper than that, there is a vertical dimension in which this new consciousness is being drawn back into the earth in a way that was characteristic of the consciousness of the pre-axial period, the primitive consciousness that was embedded in the cosmos. But now, because of the convergence of world culture, we have common problems about our survival. Our environment is threatened, our natural resources are being depleted, there is great imbalance in the use of natural resources in the world, and these are the common concerns of humanity as a whole, so that all of the great world religions have to face these problems. They have to assimilate that dimension of rootedness in the earth that was characteristic of the previous pre-axial period, but not in its mythic mode, but by retaining the subjective, self-reflective, analytic modes of consciousness of the first axial period. Now, this, I feel, is the task 
of our time. And it's in this larger context that I see the various cross-currents of religious activity in the world at the present time. For me, the distinctive element in Dr. Cousin's vision is his emphasis on what he calls the vertical dimension of planetary consciousness, the revaluing of the Earth itself. This vision of the connections which unite us with our world also animates David Spangler, the author of a new book called Emergence, The Rebirth of the Sacred. He believes that planetary culture is characterized by five perceptible shifts in consciousness. The first of these involves a new appreciation of wholeness. Wholeness, I believe, is a word we use to try to get to a point where we can begin to interpret, not just see, but interpret the connected and interrelated nature of the universe. That's one shift. The second shift is to, again, be able to see and experience the subjectivity of the universe, or what I would call the aliveness of the universe, the fact that everything has a creative innerness to it. And along with this notion of the creative innerness of all things is the idea that everything has a personhood. And it may not be personhood as we would define it for yourself and myself, but it is still, we are still dealing with a subjective reality that is worthy of love and respect and a form of communion. So that's the second shift. The third shift is the realization that we live in a processed universe, that evolution is not something that happens to us, and creation is not something that once happened millions or billions of years ago, but evolution is something that we forge as we go along. We are co-creating it as we go along. That, I feel, is a shift. It's a shift in how we view time and how we view the consequences of our actions and our thoughts, just how we view the power that is resident within us. The fourth shift is the development, in a more specific way, of a planetary consciousness, by which I mean two things, an ability to perceive, to think, and to interpret the experiences of life with an underlying implicit awareness that we are one species. And secondly, that we are part of a living planet, that the planet itself is a living being. And if I begin to accept that I am part of the development of a living organism much greater than myself, my whole planet, then I ask myself the question, what is my role in relationship to that organism? And if I begin following through the implications of that question, it begins to redefine for me the nature of, of human existence on this world, which leads to the fifth shift, which is the, the concrete application of skill, of knowledge, of ability, of human will and effort to develop a culture that is planetary in its nature, not just international, but aligned with the realization that we are part of a living being, a living world, so that our culture, or rather the many cultures of our world, support that, they nourish that, they work in harmony with the intentionality of that larger wholeness, 
rather than continuing in a state of fragmentation. So I have these five images. There's the development of the ability to perceive and interpret wholeness, the ability to perceive and understand the subjective aliveness of the universe, the ability to participate with skill and knowledge in the processes of the universe, the development of planetary consciousness, and the development of planetary culture. For David Spangler, the emergence of this planetary culture is neither a utopian nor a sectarian ideal. He prefers to define the New Age in more functional terms. There's a tendency on the part of human beings to cast a transformative threshold into apocalyptic terms, into ideological and religious terms, to make it a matter of belief, when actually it should be a matter of function. Because if I poison my land, I am going to arrive at certain limits to the productivity of that land. There's, there's just no way around that. That's just the way it is. And that's not a matter of ideology or belief or new age or old age. It just says that I will kill the soil. And when the soil is dead, that's it. The organic farming approach, to continue with that metaphor, takes into account that everything is alive and I have to work with that life. I can't work against it. I may work with it in ways that alter it, and if I do, if I manipulate it, I need to understand how it's going to manipulate me back because I am I am part of that whole system. Now, there's, there's nothing theological or mystical or ideological about that. That's just the way it is. It's just the way reality is constructed. The real dividing line between the old world and the new world, so to speak, is at that point of congruency towards reality. Though a lot of the New Age movement gets um, spoken about and described in terms of belief structures, uh, reincarnation, uh, UFOs, uh, higher levels of consciousness, and this and that, the real dividing line is, can I work with a universe that is connected, or do I work in a universe that I th in which I think I have independence from those connections and therefore cannot be held responsible for my actions. And I can work in both universes, but one of them is going to be more successful than the other. One, in one of them, I'm going to run into diminishing returns. The image that is fundamentally behind the New Age is that we have reached or are reaching the point of diminishing returns. Part of the challenge we're dealing with, whether it's on either side of that arbitrary dividing line of New Age, Old Age, is the problem of the human need to be right and the human need to be validated and the human need to belong and to have an identity with something. So that when people say, I believe in the New Age, I am part of the Aquarian conspiracy, I uh, want to belong and, and derive my identity from these new images, the New Age is, is not a, a membership club. And when it's treated that way, it, it can stimulate conflict. When it's seen as simply growing up, becoming more mature in our awareness of how our world works, 
and more willing to work with it, then it takes it into a different context entirely. begin to study in the sense in which Cicero and the classics use the word study, which means to, to dedicate myself in soul and body and spirit into that very subject matter uh, which is going to possess me instead I dominating and possessing it. The moment that we study in that sense any other religion seriously, we begin to undergo a process of conversion. That's why uh, to me today to study religions is a religious act in which you put your own faith at stake, in which you strip yourself of all your certainties and begin to recognize that you, you collectively, you Christian, you whoever, have not the monopoly on truth, have not the monopoly on the human experience, that uh, you need the other even to understand yourself. What Raimondo Panikar says here, provides us with a model of how a planetary cultural pluralism might actually work. His statement shifts the ground of our discussion from what Ewart Cousins earlier called the vertical dimension of planetary consciousness to the horizontal dimension, the new relationship between peoples and cultures in a planetary society. Nowadays, Father Panikar has written, any problem that is not stated in universal terms contains a methodological flaw from the outset. He means, I think, that our understanding of the human must comprehend and value the full range of our cultural diversity as a species. And this involves something far more demanding than mere tolerance. It involves the attempt to truly understand other traditions from within. For Father Panikar, the problem has two dimensions. First, we must recover our traditions, since they embody our accumulated wisdom. And second, we must realize that no single tradition can be completely adequate to the new planetary context. I'm saying two things. I'm saying the glitter, the allurement, the shining like gold, uh, which you see in television or you see uh, seeing Manhattan from the skies flying there, is simply a trap. Two, you have to go back to your traditions, but not stop there. There, and from there, because after all you have thousands of years of archetypes, and uh, it is from those archetypes where you, or we all together, can begin to figure out a radically new mode of living and living together. And this cannot be done just out of the wisdom of one single culture. So without now indicting uh, the Western culture, I'm too aware uh, to see the defects and abuses of most of the religions of the world. I'm not saying the West is materialistic and the East is spiritualistic. I think this is uh, an oversimplification which cannot stand any kind of criticism. 
and I think it is wrong. This this is is not just saying that we are all bad here and and just still feed on guilt complex how bad we have done it. I am not saying either that the world religions have the answer. I am saying that no single human culture or no single human religion today alone can uh, solve, not even face, not even understand the human predicament in where we are. And that's what we need is what I call the mutual fecundation. For the mutual fecundation, we need obviously to know each other much better. And until now, most of the people, and here I do not exclude, alas, intellectuals and, and, and theologians and everywhere, everybody, have made only a caricature of the other people's religions and views. The scientists have made a caricature of the primitive. The Christians have made the most obnoxious understandings and interpretations of other world religions. Uh, the Buddhists have misunderstood the Christians uh, throughout, etc., etc. Because we do not have the fundamental categories. With our own spectacles, we cannot see the other. The first step for mutual fecundation is to know each other. In order to know one another, I have to know one another from within, as I understand myself, not as you see it from outside. And that implies certainly love, sympathy and experience that I have to undergo under your own uh, skin or whatever what you have uh, gone into. Once the mutual fecundation takes place, what comes after that is a new being, is a new creature, is a new child. How is going to look like? I don't know. And that's why the, the dialogue, the fecundation, to me, is one imperative for survival and not just uh, an intellectual luxus. The process of what Father Panikar calls mutual fecundation, literally making each other fruitful, has begun to involve a growing number of theologians from all traditions. Ewart Cousins has been engaged in this dialogue of world religions for a number of years, and his encounter with Hinduism particularly has taught him to see many parallels with Christianity. There is the Christ as logos, that is the Greek term logos, meaning meaning or word, uh, the ultimate spiritual word of the Father that is also the ground of the individual soul. And Augustine, in his confessions, plunges into the depths of his own psyche, into his subjectivity, and discovers at the ground of his soul not his own individual self, but this divine reality, which he calls the image of God, and which ultimately associates with Christ as interior teacher of wisdom, so that there is the Christ ground in the soul. Now, that's very similar to the Hindu uh, tradition of the Upanishads that speaks of the Atman, the divine element within us. And we find in Bernard of Clairvaux an experience of this Christ Logos as the interior lover. Uh, he is the bridegroom of the soul who is conceived of as the bride. Uh, so that, as a matter of fact, these two traditions, um, that of wisdom in Augustine, discovering Christ as, as the ultimate wisdom in the depth of our souls, and our response to that is by way of enlightened knowledge. And in Bernard of Clairvaux, Christ as interior lover, and our response is mutual love, that that happens to parallel uh, the two major strands of the later Vedanta tradition in Hinduism, that is, the way of Shankara of knowledge and the way of 
Ramanuja, the way of love. Uh, now also, uh, it's been fascinating for me to discover the tradition of the cosmic Christ, uh, that is, Christ present throughout the universe. We find this in the early Greek fathers. Uh, we find it in the medieval Franciscans. And then it surfaces in a very dramatic way in the 20th century in the thought of Teilhard de Chardin, whose primary experience of Christ is of Christ, as he calls him, the omega, our goal of evolution, but who is active down to the least particle of matter uh, throughout the whole history of, um, of the universe in its physical, uh, chemical uh, aspects. Uh, so that these are aspects of the mystery of Christ that chiefly European and its uh, Western European uh, Christianity has uh, not maintained as much as the Greek tradition, for example. So in the context of world religions, if we really open ourselves to world religions, uh, we are driven back into the richness, to rediscover the richness of the Christian experience of the mystery of Christ. The way in which one tradition can evoke the latent resources of another has been illustrated in recent years by the effect of the introduction of Eastern religions into the Judeo-Christian civilization of the West. As Eastern religions have become more widely known and more widely practiced in the West, both Judaism and Christianity have begun to recover their own mystical dimension. These may to some extent be parallel processes, but I believe there is also an element of what Raimundo Panikar calls mutual fecundation, one tradition illuminating and extending the meaning of another. Ewart Cousins. What we experience is a type of passing over into the religious value world of the other tradition. And if we achieve that, and I do believe we have a faculty for that, we can experience that other tradition from inside. Uh, and then we come back to our own, very much enriched, and much more self-conscious of what constitutes our own tradition, uh, the common elements and the differences between them. And I believe, as you say, that if you go deeply enough into these great traditions, you will find that, in some sense, each one contains the whole, but with different emphases. And these emphases, I think, are the points of enrichment that, for example, in the West, the personal aspect of God has been emphasized, whereas the transpersonal, you might say, or what is sometimes improperly called impersonal, but you know, the non-personal dimension of, of the divinity, has been part of the mystical experience of the West, and uh, it's been articulated by the Greek Christian mystics, by the Western mystics, such as Meister Eckhart. But it's not what is central in the imaging of the religion. Whereas if we pass over, as it were, into Hinduism in certain of its traditions, like the non-dualistic Vedanta tradition, uh, the focus is precisely on that. Uh, and then coming back to our own, uh, we can discover that within our own tradition. So I think there's a great deal of mutual revelation, you might say, of one tradition to the other. Understanding world religions as complementary enables us to see that even in their contradictions, the various religious experiences of the world's peoples may correct and complete each other. Indeed, looked at from David Spangler's perspective, they may be seen as ultimately the same experience, their differences being accounted for 
by the very different historical circumstances in which this experience takes place. He develops the point with reference to the Christ and the Buddha. I wouldn't exactly see the Buddha as a predecessor of the Christ, except that that's how we see it through our historical vision. I would say the Buddha is an implication or ramification or, or co-expression with the Christ of a multidimensional spiritual event that at this point is involving and embracing all of us. Let me give you an example. There's a, a novel that was written many years ago called Flatland, and it uh, was a, a fictional story about a world entirely made up of two-dimensional beings. They had width and they had length, but they had no depth. And it's the, specifically the story of one character who is a square who is visited one night in his room by a three-dimensional being who happens to be a sphere, like a beach ball. Well, he has no way of comprehending that third dimension of depth. So his experience of the beach ball as it passes through his field of vision, as it passes through the flatland, is of a succession of planes. Well, what I would consider the Christ event or the incarnation of divinity is like a, a multidimensional being that we are trying to conceive through a three-dimensionally oriented mind. And because we don't have uh, an everyday experience of those extra dimensions, we experience that event as history, as a series of events. So we could say, well, one event was the Buddha, and one event was Krishna, and one event was uh, Zoroaster, uh, one event was Socrates, and so on and so forth until you come to the Christ. Now, to me, the Christ represents a middle point. And after that, it isn't as if that event starts to diminish, and so perhaps my analogy of the beach ball is not all that fitting, but the event begins to take a different direction in which the consequences of that event and the future development of that event, its future incarnation, begins to center itself more and more and more through humanity as a collective, in effect challenging us to develop both individually and, and socially, collectively, the kind of compassion and uh, awareness and uh, consciousness and attunement and alignment that people like the Buddha and the Christ uh, manifested. For David Spangler, what Christianity calls the incarnation is a process which embraces the earth as a whole. But like the Flatlanders, we understand and interpret it according to our own lights and in our own historical circumstances. Each religion has specialized in certain paths while ignoring or even actively suppressing others. One of the advantages of a planetary religious pluralism, therefore, might be the fostering of a wider range of choices, allowing individuals to find a way more in accord with their own temperament than has been the case in the past. In classical spirituality, both East and West, uh, there is the path of images and then the path of silence, or the path of negation of images. 
we find this in the classical text of the Pseudo Dionysius in the West, the divine names, the positive way, going through the positive divine attributes of goodness and beauty and truth and so forth, to a union with God. And then in the mystical theology, the way of negation, of negating all sense impressions, all symbols, all intellectual content into the divine darkness, as it is called. We find this also in Hinduism. We find uh, the negative way thematized chiefly in, in Buddhism. Now, I think that there are prior tendencies in human persons that some are inclined towards the way of images and some towards uh, the imageless way. And uh, that I think that what the encounter of religions is providing us with is a way of discerning uh, which practice and which spiritual path is most appropriate to an individual. For example, an image-type person might find himself in a culture and uh, a religious tradition that is dominantly uh, imageless. Now, I think, uh, since we can see the way in which uh, the, the paths have been charted in the whole history of mankind, uh, that we have a better opportunity now, I think, for discerning uh, what an individual path should be. is to reacquire a sense of the divine as manifested in the gorgeous, the gorgeousness of the planet Earth. Now, if we have a uh, wonderful idea of the divine, it's because the planet is so gorgeous. If we lived on the moon, our idea of God would be the lunar landscape. Our minds would be as blank as the moon. Our imagination would be as blank. We wouldn't have words because there'd be nothing to name, or a few words because there'd be few things to name. So that if we do not first recover our sense of the planet and the sense of the universe, then I don't see how we're going to have any decent sense of the divine. Father Thomas Berry calls himself a geologian, by which he means a theologian of the earth. Working in the tradition of Théard de Chardin, he has been a powerful voice within contemporary Christianity for a creation-centered spirituality. He begins the final section of tonight's program, in which we will examine some of the elements in the Christian tradition which can support a planetary vision. This follows the principle suggested earlier by Raimundo Panikar, that we need to return to our traditions but understand them in a new context. In his deepest subjectivity, Father Barry has written, man is the earth, as the earth in its consciousness phase is man. Our consciousness, in other words, is not properly ours at all. 
but is rather the actualization of the universe's latent capacity for self-reflection. But we have failed to appreciate our unity with the earth because of our historical sense that the spiritual and the material are somehow opposed to each other. And this has partly resulted from what Father Barry calls a fall redemption theology. This has to do with the sense of the world uh, as something needs to be redeemed with the human, that there is a pervasive guilt uh, from which uh, the human needs to be redeemed and that redemption is the primary objective of religion. Well, this again uh, is leaves a person without the type of interest in the world. The world is looked upon as under a condemnation and therefore it's difficult to get that interested in the world if you believe that the world, uh, that we need to be saved out of the world rather than to enter into the dynamics of the world. So my suggestion is that we move more into a creationist position, that perhaps we put the Bible on the shelf for 20 years and begin to read the scripture of the natural world and enter into the dynamics of the natural world because the primary scripture, the primary revelation, the primary divine manifestation is the natural world. And to enter into this creativity that's taking place in the natural world or throughout the universe is the, the primary element in uh, what I would call the religious life. An integral part of what Father Barry calls fall redemption theology has been the doctrine of original sin, the idea that nature itself has somehow fallen away from the divine. But according to Matthew Fox, a Dominican priest who directs the Institute in Culture and Creation-Centered Spirituality in Oakland, California, it is a doctrine which has no basis in either the Hebrew or the Christian Bible. The fact is that the word original sin was not used until the 4th century A.D. by St. Augustine. Jesus never heard the word. And as Elie Weissel says, the idea of original sin, he says, is alien to Jewish thinking. So it's not just that the term is not understood by Jews who had the Genesis story over a thousand years before the Christians had it, but even the concept is alien, that it introduces a skepticism about one's right to be here, about the beauty of one's existence, about the goodness of creation, a skepticism that is foreign and contradictory, really, the basic thrust of the Hebrew Bible. So what is basic and primary is what I call original blessing, that what you have in the very first page of Genesis, that creation is very good and all the elements of it are very good. Now, as far as the fall story goes, the creation tradition is not denying the fall. Not to begin with original sin doesn't mean that you throw out um, the story of the fall. But the, the fall is, is about, I think, um, the awakening of human consciousness is awakening both to our powers and capacities for divine creativity and for evil. And they go together. And there's this tension. And I think the key is keeping the dialectic alive. So it's important to distinguish things between the fall and original sin. And remember that Augustine's theology of original sin was uh, 
not as important to him as it became to the Christian church, which is very interesting, I think. It was an idea he developed late in his life, and the fact is it became a starting point for much Western theology centuries after his death, where it really was not his starting point. He ties it all up with his very neurotic ideas of sexuality. He equates original sin with intercourse, and the, the male passes on original sin and the seed and all this strange stuff. So what I'm saying is simply um, original sin is no place to begin one's theology. Uh, original blessing is. Matthew Fox believes that a creation-centered spirituality has the possibility of overcoming the otherworldliness of religion. Not only might it unify our perceptions of the spiritual and the material as co-expressions of a single reality, but it can also reconcile the traditionally divorced realms of politics and spiritual life. He discusses the possibility of this reconciliation in terms of his own experience. I came of age in the late 60s in America. The whole Vietnam War thing, the civil rights thing, all this political action was going on. And I felt very drawn to it, and I was. In Europe, I also got to know well the liberation of theologians studying political theology with Johannes Metz and in Munster, a lot of Marxist Catholics and things like that. At the same time, though, I was studying in Paris the history of mysticism. And I really felt it my job to put the two together. All my writing, my very, from my very first book um, up to my last, has been an effort to put the two together, what I call the prophetic movement, which is the political struggle, and the mystical, which I call the radical psychological struggle, if you will. My whole life as a theologian has, has been to show the dialectic between the two. I think a, a Marxist who lacks the mysticism becomes um, very bad company. <laughs> Such a person is not at home with children or lovers or music or the earth. And they, such Marxists end up talking a privatized, elitist language with each other. And they don't have any imagination left. They're just repeating very old 19th century slogans. And they bore me. On the other hand, um, so-called spiritual people who have no political sense, and, and by that I mean no a feeling for the, the God who is oppressed, the God who is in pain, such people not only bore me, they utterly scandalize me, and they, they can't um, explain the cross at all. <laughs> and they just emote about it, but they're not living the struggle. So I, I think it's obvious that politics without mysticism is very bad and dangerous business, but also uh, mysticism without politics ends up in pure superstition. And you don't have to go east to get the deepest mysticism. It seems to me, at least for Westerners, there's a lot of it in our own culture. And the great mystics who I draw on, like Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, Hildegard of Bingen, Mechthilde Magdeburg, even Aquinas, these people were all very politically involved. Aquinas, we forget, was condemned three times before he was canonized. And uh, Eckhart was condemned by his church a week after he died. So, and Hildegard was in constant battles. So the fact is that the whole history I, I, of the creation tradition is a history of people who tried to bring together a mystical vision into everyday life. That's what the incarnation is about. That's why Jesus got killed and Paul and a lot of others. A creation-centered spirituality asserts the ultimate value of the earth, 
and of the human person. It directs our attention not to the future but to the present and suggests that the true inner meaning of Christianity is revealed in the fullness of our bodily life in the eternally present moment in which we actually live. In us, says Thomas Berry, the universe celebrates itself. The planet itself provides the primary ritual. The universe is ritual celebration, so we don't have to invent the celebration, we have to enter into it. And all religions ordered their ritual according to the liturgy of the universe. It's why we have the springtime rituals of renewal. It's why we have the Thanksgiving rituals. So all I'm suggesting is that we go back to original experience and which is the comprehensive experience of all peoples. But we need now need to add to seasonal celebration. We need to celebrate historical moments in the emergent evolutionary process, like the shaping of the sun, like the origin of the planet Earth, or the moment when life was born. We've never celebrated because we never knew how these things came into being. Now we know we should celebrate them. Origin moments are sacred moments. That's why we celebrate birthday, and we should celebrate the birthday of life, the appearance of life in, uh, in its elementary form. We should celebrate the, the birth of the planet. We should celebrate the birth of the flowers. The flowers, we know now pretty well when flowers came into being. The flower revolution, there was a whole revolution of the whole earth when flowers came into being about 100 million years ago. And when the flowers came, then the ferns retreated back onto the margins and the flowers took over. And except for the flowers, uh, flowering things that had seeds and protein foods, humans could never have been born. Flowers were essential for humans to be born. We don't celebrate it, though. Why not? It certainly is a stupendous religious event. So our sense of religion has been so attenuated that we don't even respond to the most elementary and most powerful modes in which religions, uh, religious experience takes place. All I suggest is that we recover our religious sensitivities. If we do that, then all our problems are solved. <laughs> <laughs> All of creation resounds with song. Bless ye the Lord, praise him forever. Stars in the
on ideas tonight, you've just heard Towards a Planetary Culture, a concluding program in the series History and the New Age, written and presented by David Cayley. The production assistant was Alison Moss, and technical operations for tonight's program were by Colleen Veach. The series was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo. A reading list on History in the New Age is available. For your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. And printed transcripts of these four programmes are also available for $5. Send your requests to CBC Enterprises, The New Age, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Please don't send cash through the mail, but make your money order or check payable to CBC Enterprises. And please be prepared to wait about six weeks for delivery. Well, with tonight's program, we conclude our season of original broadcasts. But Ideas returns on the air this Sunday with selected repeat broadcasts of some of your favorite programs. Write to us for a copy of our summer schedule and join us again on Sunday night for the first program in the repeat of the series the Marriage of True Minds. The executive producer of Ideas is Robert Prowse. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.
Por eso 